Happy Monday and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Brianne Fanelin and I am joined by David McConaughey and we are also joined by by David Robertson. It's such a pleasure to have you all on all of our continents. I'm so grateful for the technology that allows us to be comfortable in our own places and avoiding all of the carbon implications of flying <laughs> us around to actually <laughs> see each other in person to do these interviews each Very week. true. I like how you've sold our complete lack of money as an environmental benefit, Dave. That's very clever. We're saving the planet <laughs> one episode at a time. This week, we have an excellent conversation. I'm really excited to be sharing this. Uh, the Problem with Religion and Related Categories with Timothy Fitzgerald, done by our very own David Robinson. So take it away. I'm joined today by Timothy Fitzgerald, uh, returning to the Religious Studies Project after, uh, well, after a few years. Um Tim is originally from the UK, but now based in Brisbane, uh, where he is a visiting research professor at the University of Queensland in the Institute of Advanced Studies in the Humanities. He's one of the most prominent figures in the critical study of religion, and this interview um, t is taking place on the 20 years uh, since the publication of The Ideology of Religious Studies, which was a kind of watershed text in the emergence of uh, the you know, critical religion um, and that approach that we at the RSP um, have been have have been pushing since day one I guess um, so first of all Tim welcome back to the religious studies project and thanks for making time oh thanks for inviting me it's good to be with you it's it's been uh, it's been difficult to get this uh, interview arranged, so I'm glad that it's finally happening. Um, let's start uh, assuming that the listener probably hasn't read the ideology of religious studies, or well, or may not have read the ideology of religious studies. Um, let's start with a little bit of your um, of of your backstory. How did, how did you get there from you know your your first degree in RS, the same way that we all sort of start with whichever religion we decide to specialize in. How did you get there? Yeah, well, there are there are different possible starting points, but I agree the uh, the degree in religious studies that I did at King's College London is a good place to start. Um, because I did that degree in 75, 77, and uh, it was a really good degree. Um, uh, I learned a lot from it. I'm glad I did it. It was well taught. It was uh, well organized in a lot of ways. And um, it was all about religion, right? So we had um, uh, eight or nine courses that lasted over the period of three years. Three of them were in the philosophy of religion. Uh, one was in anthropology of religion, one in sociology of religion, one in psychology of religion. And then in addition, we had to study two world religions. Um, the, the world religions model was very well established, obviously, at that time. And um, that was in 70, as I say, it was in the mid-70s. Uh, Ninian Smart was very prominent, and the uh, the whole sort of uh, religious studies education scene was pretty much dominated by the world religions model, 
uh, as, as you know. Now, we did all of these uh, studies of religion, um, and um, one issue which came up for me was the question of what religion actually means, because what it refers to, um, you know, in a lot of these uh, sub-disciplines like the anthropology of religion or the philosophy of religion, there, there are, there's a sort of genre of writing concerned with defining what religion is. And one of the things that struck me, and I suppose anybody else who read these um, different approaches to the definition of religion, one of the things that struck me was that uh, there was so much room for disagreement um, mm. that uh, basically the the meaning of religion, the reference of religion, was thoroughly contested. Um, but that didn't lead anybody to question whether we should have departments of religious studies uh, focused on researching um, a term which cannot be defined and about which there is such uh, such a degree of uh, <laughs> uh, com- co- uh, conflict or contestation. Um, so that was... That, that was really what I came out of King's College London with. It was a very valuable thing. I think in a way it was, um, one could say that the degree was successful because it taught me how to reflect critically. And but lo and behold, I was reflecting critically on the very category that was at the heart of all of these studies that we were reading. Well, despite the sort of um, prominence of Ninian Smart's approach, it sounds like it's actually quite a methodological or at least theoretical uh, undergraduate course, much more so than you would find in most places nowadays, I think, you know, with this sort of uh, an entire course on philosophy of religion, an entire course on the psychology of religion. You know, you don't, I don't think courses look like that anymore. Right. Well, it, it, it was it was good. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it, and um, uh, I got a huge amount. I mean, the, we did a lot of philosophy, um, and uh, for example, we did philosophy in the sense of history of ideas, but it was it involved looking at particular uh, writers, particular thinkers in some depth. Um, this was very much uh, the sort of. Anglo-American analytical side of philosophy. We didn't study. Um, we didn't study any of the, or we didn't study many of the French or German uh, philosophers. Um, mm. uh, of course, Wittgenstein was very important, and uh, one of the uh, one of the ways in which philosophers of religion and and many others have tried to find a solution to this definitional problem is through Wittgenstein's language games and the mm. idea that the meaning of a word comes from its use. And those are important insights, and but they don't actually, for me, solve the definitional problem. And in fact, I've had uh, quite extended arguments about this uh, with people like Benson Saylor, who's a great defender of um, uh, Wittgenstein's uh, family resemblance kind of approach to defining the meaning of words. 
um, but I, I think it is uh, it has it has problems. So uh, the ideology of religious studies includes a great deal of argument about the 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 way that Wittgenstein's arguments are used to find a solution to the definitional problem. And uh, well, hopefully we can we can get to that later on. Sure. Um, I want to I want to walk the listener uh, kind of to there um, because I think actually the the story of how you got there is is quite interesting in itself. So um, we talked before about um, when you started looking at Buddhism and Hinduism. You know, after your PhD, that uh, the the lack of referent in you know the category of religion um you it began to hit home you began to get some sort of uh, clear uh, historical examples of that yes um yes i i got a job in a college of higher education hertfordshire college of higher education um in 1980 it was my first full-time job and one of my responsibilities was to teach uh, hinduism and buddhism and um this we we had two when i joined we had two degrees one was the education degree for teacher mm. the teachers so there were a lot of it was a teacher training college originally i think and then there was a new BA in humanities, of which um, the study of religion provided some pretty substantial uh, segments, courses. Uh, so I was teaching on those two. And, um, I mean, the students would ask, you know, I was teaching Hinduism and Buddhism as a world religion, but feeling very uncomfortable with it because I could see the problems. And... Um, they, they, they're vast essentializations, aren't they, based on uh, texts or on edited and selected versions of texts. Um, and uh, the idea of Hinduism is taught very much in a sort of history of ideas fashion, or used to be. So the, the, there's a whole series of dates that you need to learn, and um, you need to learn mm. um, the basic doctrines. And uh, But one thing that uh, this complex construct Hinduism fra- taught as a religion doesn't do is to explain the wider context in which these uh, abstracted textual uh, references and concepts exist, uh, and of course, caste is a particularly uh, problematic term. Uh, you, if you if you read um, world religions textbooks, you will get reference about Hinduism. You'll constantly get references to caste, but nobody explains it properly. What is caste? Mm. It's it's presented as though it's a sort of um, uh, uh, a kind of religious injunction on on the division of labor or something. It's not the the actual way in which caste operates. Um, it's not really explained. And in, in order to find that out, you have to go into anthropology. So I was reading a huge amount of anthropology to supplement my world religion uh, experience. Um 
because anthropologists and and sometimes anthropologists are also interested in history but the point is that anthropologists actually go and try and come into contact with this abstraction caste and at that time particularly Louis Dumont uh, who wrote a classic book Homo Hierarchicus he dominated the field of Indian anthropology but there were there were lots of other important anthropologists Srinivas for example but I, I I read I read a lot of anthropology, uh, and this was in response, after all, to my students' demands. Because actually, a, a lot of the students were thinking in very practical ways and uh, perfectly legitimately. They weren't really interested in the doctrine of salvation according to the Brihandanyaka Upanishad. They were interested in why women wear a mark in their forehead or how marriages happen or what different people eat or they wanted to know about the actual practicalities of the village economy uh, you know how how does caste actually operate within uh, a village community and these are very uh, you know further questions that i would be asked would be um how can caste operate in huge cities like Bombay and Delhi uh, when there are so many people? Surely um, your caste identity simply gets lost. These kinds of really practical and interesting questions. And here was I teaching Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, but I'd never even been to India. Um, and that just seemed to me to be wrong. So I uh, organized uh, I. Th- uh, organized a research trip it wasn't brilliantly well organized but basically my research was going to be on caste untouchability and the effect of uh, colonial institutions and uh, whether the improvements and progress of liberal political economy had really helped to liberate people from the caste system and uh, one particular uh, leader, Indian leader, was drawn to my attention, and that was Dr. B. R. Ambedkar. And Ambedkar became a really uh, a central, a source of great interest to me. Um, so I, I went, managed to go to India uh, for four months in the 1980s. I got a got some money together, and uh, I just spent four months in India. Uh, meeting people and just trying to understand what India looks like, smells like, you know, feels like. Um, I know that you've got a, an interest in Mary Douglas's work and um, talking about caste there, I mean, I, I immediately start thinking of, of purity and danger um, and ideas of cleanliness. And I, I don't know if she's I know her ideas are applicable so much wider than simply talking about religions and uh, certainly the way that uh, these kind of, well, disgust being the obvious uh, thing, but in-group and out-group structures are kind of ritualized but um, mystified in cultures. Uh, yes, immediately jumps to mind and I, I know that you're a fan of her so uh, was that where you got to her work as well um at first i was getting it more from louis dumont who also really belonged to the um the french school of sociology like called sociologique 
<clears throat> he was a Dirk Hymian in many ways, um, as was Mary Douglas. Um, mm, indeed. And um, Durkheim had been a big influence on me when I was doing my degree at King's College London. Um, and uh, for a long time, I thought of myself in a sense as a Durkheimian. Uh, and I read Dumont through a Durkheimian perspective. Uh, but Dumont was uh, very much um, putting the purity-pollution binary as the kind of def- definition, almost the, the the central characteristic of the uh, the caste system. So you get the Brahmins as pure and the untouchables as impure and uh, a whole number of other castes in between sort of lining up in relative degrees of purity and pollution. Uh, And it's a very useful way of looking at it. Um, Of course, there was huge debate about these things in Indian anthropology and sociology, but um, I think nobody would doubt that Dumont's uh, picking on these uh, this this binary is the sort of outside limits of what could be thought in terms of social or, or human relations rather mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah Mary Douglas uh, came came hot on the heels after Louis Dumont as one of the people that I read and one of the people that I have really enjoyed teaching. I think uh, she's she's been generally really helpful. One one uh, point that I would like to make, actually, <clears throat> since we're talking about Durkheim, Dumont, Mary Douglas, um, I think I think you can see a kind of progressive um, move from um, the sort of uh, empirical eth- ethnograph- ethnographic approach to sociology or anthropology towards um, uh, the the idea of, um, well, I, I, I'm calling them signaling systems. What, what Durkheim meant by a totemic system or a system of collective representations, um, mm. what, what, what I think you get in all of these, these uh, writers is a move towards uh, reading signs, in uh, re- reading signs and their relationships as being the fundamental <clears throat> point of understanding anybody's collective life. Um, Would you agree that it's it's maybe a, a progress from a structuralist into a post-structuralist view? Well, yeah, I think so. But I mean, Dumont is is usually considered to be a structuralist and i think that's one of the reasons why people don't read him very much now or they don't seem to <clears throat> but um i think his work is actually is very subtle in a lot of ways and it's very rich um he also wrote as well as homo hierarchicus he also wrote a book well he wrote uh, from from mandeville to marx uh, and he also wrote a collection of essays called Essays on Individualism, where he uh, he tries to show how, uh, where, whereas in India, the individual is always outside the world, structurally speaking and symbolically speaking, mm-hmm. um, 
in uh, the European Christian traditions, the individual started off as outside the world, but moved to become the in-worldly individual uh, as a result of, basically as a result of modern capitalism, <clears throat> or uh, as a characteristic of modern capitalism. Uh, whereas individuals used to sort of go to the desert and and um, separate themselves in a ser- from the rest of the main body of humanity in the search for salvation or the, some kind of self-discovery. You know, you think of those um, hermits and um, renouncers in Christ- early Christian Europe and they've existed all the way through. Well, in India, you get a very, very ancient tradition of renunciation uh, where uh, people symbolically, um, they, uh, where, where people renounce their family, their village, their family name, their normal activities, clothes, profession, and really, in a sense, become a living non-person. They they perform their own uh, cremation symbolically by cremating their old clothes and various symbols of their previous life. So they um, they become an outworldly individual. They become an individual because they separated themselves from the collective uh, symbolically and and physically. Um, and they've uh, they've now become uh, uh, something rather special and sacred and powerful by moving out of the normal collective, which in India would be very much about caste, caste membership, moving out of that and becoming uh, a kind of individual. Actually, most uh, most renouncers in India join ashrams. They they belong to some kind of an organisation. They often have a guru. But nevertheless, Dumont was reading this at the symbolic level, that this is a move from identity defined by the collective to a kind of outworldly identity, uh, an individual identity. Um, so his story was that in the as a result of the Reformation and then the development of various forms of Calvinism, where there's a very strong emphasis on the lonely individual working in the world. Um, so the the individual becomes, instead of being an outworldly value, becomes the central inworldly value of modern capitalist society. Uh, I, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. Very much so. Um, after your research on India and teaching at the Higher Education College, you then uh, moved to Japan for three years. Uh, and again, this uh, this is another kind of shift in your work then. Uh, so tell us about that. Yeah, sure. Well, just as India had really shocked me um, and given me a different perspective on the world and, uh, and, and also on myself, I think it's quite important not for egotistical reason, but it's quite important to realize that one is that one has internalized a great deal of shared common symbolic life which constructs our individuality, and that when you move out of that shared symbolic life, 
your consciousness is quite vulnerable and you change a lot. Some people call it culture shock, but it's to do with a a reorientation of values. Well, going to Japan was even more of like that because Japan is completely different from India and it's very different from Britain. And uh, going to Japan to live, this is because I met uh, Noriko, my wife, who's Japanese, in London. And we had our first, our son, James, uh, he was born in London, but then we almost immediately went to Japan because I'd been offered a job there. And, uh, you know, her father was asking me to go and live in Japan for a while. He didn't want to lose his daughter to a foreigner, which is perfectly understandable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, just suddenly disappear to London and never be seen again. So I, I was lucky. I was invited to go and join a university in Japan uh, called Aichigakyu, uh, which was in Nagoya. And uh, I had to do a lot of English teaching. Uh, but I did also have a status as a research academic um yeah working in japan i had to very quickly start learning japanese because mm-hmm. i didn't know a word of japanese when i went there and um i was there for several years and it was a very it was hugely valuable i mean my children are bilingual they still speak mm-hmm. japanese with their mother um my japanese was never fully fluent but by the time i left i could more than survived there um you know for the last six or seven years i was living there alone because noriko and the children had gone back to london and that was a fantastic impetus for me and i i I went there when i was over 40 i ought to add i was uh, like 40 years old when when i first went to japan it's not and i can vouch that in your 40s trying to learn a new language is not easy no, not at all, especially when it's a non-European one. But I yeah, did absolutely. learn a huge amount, and uh, I've never regretted that. I, I regret that I couldn't, I couldn't enter into academic debates with Japanese. That was just too a stretch too far. You really need to be trained in Japanese language from an earlier age and do it thoroughly. But uh, nevertheless, uh, it, 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 I, I learned so much, and I had so. I'll tell you, one of the the main things it did was to reorientate me, as I was explaining about India. Um, it doesn't mean to say that I idealized Japan. I was a big critic of Japan <laughs> as a foreigner, you know, living in Japan. But at the same time, there are lots of things I really admired about the way Japanese people do things, the way they organize. Uh, there are lots of things that I learned from being in Japan. Um, one important one, though, I think, is is the idea of translating uh, categories. Um, Japan, in certainly in conversations I have in RS, it's it's very useful as an example where the idea of of religion in the way that we think of it generally just doesn't really work um and yet they've been kind of forced to take it on to some degree uh as a result of you know colonial forces in the 19th century particularly um and yet our western hegemonic classifications don't really map on to japanese society very well 
no, would no. that be fair to say? Yes, I think I think that is fair. Yeah, I think it's true. <clears throat> In fact, that's been one of the themes of uh, uh, quite a lot of published work on Japan, my own published work. That, um, um, you know, I, I, to, just to give you a practical example, uh, I, when I was teaching English in the universities, it was really boring, by the way, because most of the <laughs> most of the Japanese students don't want to learn English, and I don't blame them. I mean, why should they? They they're perfectly happy speaking their own language, um, but also it's the way that English is taught, or languages in general are taught in Japan. So I found myself teaching a large class of twenty or thirty students who were sitting in absolutely straight lines, desks in straight lines. They would often self-gender, so you'd get the the men uh, sitting on one side of the room and the women on the other. Not always, but they quite often do that. It was a bit like uh, an extension of the school system. You know, the Japanese school system is very yeah. uh, disciplined, and you don't you don't have a question the teacher. Um, and uh, basically the teacher is there to speak and the students are there to listen. It's very difficult under those circumstances to have a conversation class, as they jokingly used to call them. But um, so uh, because I was trying to develop confidence in speaking Japanese, I used to sometimes try to start a conversation in an English class in Japanese which was a shocking experience for my students, A, because, uh, well, you just don't do that kind of thing, uh, and B, because, um, well, they had to suffer the uh, <laughs> the very unskillful pronunciations and grammatical forms that I was producing. Um but nevertheless, uh, you know, it was something that I was determined to do because I, I, I wanted to show them that I was prepared to make a fool of myself in trying to speak Japanese in front of a lot of students. Um, that uh, therefore, I'm not going to laugh at them if they're feeling embarrassed about their English. That uh, that's not what I'm there for. I'm there to encourage and to help with communication skills, stuff like that. Um, so in these circumstances, I, 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 one of the, the conversations I used to like to have is, what does uh, religion mean to you? And I, I would sometimes ask it in English and then ask it again in Japanese using the Japanese term shukyo, which was the, is the current dominant translation for religion. And the students, um, you know, uh, quite often in these circumstances, nobody will reply. There's just a deathly silence. But quite often I found uh, if I was a bit persistent, they'd say, oh, religion is Christianity. It's nothing to do with me. <laughs> you know, um, Some would say Christianity and Buddhism, religion. Uh, and I'd say, well, what about the... Oh, Matsuri, the festivals. What about all your visits to the temple and the shrine? Um, you know, are these, uh, what about your, um, uh, you, you know, your uh, the way that you pay respects to your ancestors in the home or 
these kinds of things. And they, they would just respond and say, oh, no, no, that's not religion. That's our customs. That's Japanese mm-hmm. customs. That's, that's the way we live. So you see, there, 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 the distinction between religion and what foreign and Japanese scholars of religion will describe as religious practices, for most people they're not. And I, I think that that was uh, uh, something that I needed to learn, you know. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder how. I mean, there's certainly a way of looking at sort of everyday, you know, what what gets called sort of lived religion or vernacular religion a lot of the time now. Um, I'm certainly thinking about most of my kind of. Um, uh, relatives and and friends growing up in a working class area the highlands uh, that's mostly the way that they talk about religion as well you know religion no it's the the wee freeze at the high kirk or whatever but you know going to speak to your gran at the grave or um you know these kind of ritual behaviors around uh yeah 20 21st birthdays or christmas time or hogmanay or whatever they weren't really thought of as religion but i i can't help but think if if um if you know, there was a sort of uh, 1930s anthropologist in that situation. He would be describing all of these as kind of primitive religious rituals. Well, um, yeah, except that um, basically, uh, yeah, primitive, I don't think contemporaries would call them primitive, but... No, 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 no. um, No, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, There's a whole tradition of... <clears throat> making other people's practices look as though they're somehow um, backward, lower on the evolutionary scale, uh, less sophisticated. But um, I, I think uh, also there is the complication that there is a, a kind of meta level say, the constitutional level, the level of constitutional and the level of uh, the judiciary concerning what religion means. And uh, this is is basically adopted from uh, Europe. Um, And it's quite a long story, but it it involves talking about the – in the mid-19th century, the Americans were becoming very powerful. They were quite imperialistic. The the United States of America, which had um, liberated people from the tyranny of a European monarch, uh, and I want to pick. I want. I want to pick that up at the start of the next interview. Yeah. yeah. Um, because I don't think we've got time to do it, no, do it justice I think now. It's a very long one. That it's because I think we need to talk about the way in which religion became inscribed in the U.S. Constitution. And Absolutely. So we're going to pick, we'll pick that one up there in uh, the the next episode. But um, for now, let's just a yeah. So. Whilst you're in Japan, you wrote the the ideology of religious studies. Um, so, tell us a, just a, 
a little bit about the the overall argument there. I mean, certainly reading that as a, I was either towards the end of being an undergrad or uh, the start of um, postgraduate studies. It was the first sustained argument challenging um you know religions world religions uh the um phenomenological approach which had been so sort of central to the way that they taught edinburgh um so uh, yeah just uh, briefly sum up where you were when you wrote that um monograph well as you say i was in japan and um it was the culmination of uh, I, I mean i'd been publishing about japan during the 90s um for for example uh i was reading books on japanese religion in english but written by japanese scholars who had either written it in england their their contribution in english or had it had been translated um but uh, one thing that struck me there was one particular volume uh which was quite authoritative i mean it had been it had been published and financed under the auspices of the Ministry of Culture in Japan, and the uh, there were, I think, six or five or six uh, uh, professors who contributed special chapters to it. One on Japanese Buddhism, one on Japanese Shinto, one on Japanese Confucianism, one on J- Japanese. Um, uh, nature religion, one on folk, sorry, folk religion, uh, and one mm-hmm. or two others. Though, so, yeah, one one on Christianity in Japan. I think very few Christians in Japan. But now, what what struck me about all of these writers was that a they were all specialising in a particular religion or a particular religious tradition, which they set out to describe for the reader. But at the same time, every single one of them said that actually this is a very artificial distinction because really you can't talk about Shinto without talking about Confucianism and Buddhism and the same with the others because they're all they, they, they're all part of our lives. We don't really choose between them. It's not as though I'm a Shintoist but not a Buddhist. And the idea that I'm not a Confucianist um, is difficult to swallow. You know, the, the point is that there was a contradiction inherent in what they were saying, and it was the same contradiction that I'd been in, that I'd encountered. Well, I'd encountered it in India in a particular way, but also in the definitional problems in the degree that I did. That there was a disparity between uh, what people were saying in one part of the text and what they were actually saying in another part. So my first article uh, about Japan uh, was published, uh, I, can't, I can't remember now, in the early 90s. Uh, was it 93, 94, 95? Um, and uh, it was called Japanese Religion as Ritual Order. And what I was trying... 1993. 1993, okay. And it was published, I think, in Religion. Yeah, uh, and uh, um, I was trying to point out this th- th- what I've just told you uh, in in that article. I called it Japanese religion as ritual order because I was trying to find a term which would give me some kind of a base, 
And ritual seemed to be a very useful one because uh, ritual, we, we can use the term ritual to describe either side of the binary. You know, you can have religious rituals and secular rituals, but ritual was a term which I hoped I would be able to use in order to avoid using this binary religion secular um, because it didn't seem to me to work. So I looked at all the ways in which the Japanese ritualized their everyday lives in all the institutions, in the household, in the schools, in the universities, in the corporations, in the small businesses, uh, in, in, in the services. Every, every institutional practice is a ritual which constructs seniors and juniors. That's one of the things it does. It's imbued with respect language and different levels of language. Uh, they, uh, there is a, an issue about social space, so people distance themselves uh, in a certain way. Bowing is an obvious example of um, the ritualization of everyday life. Um, so um, I wanted to try and subvert this essentializing dichotomy between religion on the one hand and the rest of secular life on the other and showed that it's much more like a ritual continuum. And that went in very much to the ideology of religious studies. For me, the 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 most kind of impactful realization in it was the um, kind of the critique of um, phenomenology, the phenomenological method, as uh, kind of essentialist and um, maybe even crypto theological, um, together with the. Uh, the sort of larger critique of the category um, as essentially kind of without that kind of uh, essence to it, without some sort of, like it, the, the term was essentially meaningless unless it's referring to this sui generis kind of essence. Um, and that, I, that for me was the most impactful part of that argument. Um I don't know if that was if that was central for you, but that was uh, yeah, certainly. Yeah. I, no, I think I think of course it is central. Yes, um, I mean one of the one of the points of my arguments was that religion is actually used to, to describe and classify so much that it becomes empty of any specific content. And um, there, there, you know, if you look at the actual range of usage of the term religion yeah, there's a religion of everything mm. um, and yet at the same time it's in this either or essentializing binary with the non-religious secular now that, there's something very interesting there that on the one hand you've got a category which can be used so widely that you begin to wonder is anything not religion or religious but on the other hand, it's held together in this essentially either or binary. It's either religion or it's not religion, which gives it the appearance of having a very determinate and definitive reference. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And um, But it also raises the question about if we can't define the religion side of the binary, then we can't, we can't find the limits of the secular side either. 
And religion, my, my work in uh, the ideology of religious studies was very much about destabilizing politics um, and uh, society. Uh, society is the generic abstraction for sociology. Um, and a, a lot of the stuff was aimed at Ninian Smart, but also much more widely. I mean, I discussed a lot of different theorists in the ideology of religious studies. Um, and uh, I wanted to undermine these grand dichotomies, but as soon as you question the limits of the secular, then you're also questioning politics or the idea of society or the idea of culture. And that's exactly, uh, and that's exactly where we're going to pick up uh, in the next part of this interview. But for now, thank you, Tim. Okay, thank you, David. Thank you very much for that interview, Dave. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you felt recording that particular one? Well, I, I've been wanting to record that for a long, long time. Um, I've been talking to Tim quite a bit recently. Um, and, I mean, we ended up presenting together at the Australian uh, association conference recently, which we managed to both go to and not meet in person. I know that was being... crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was unfortunate timing. So this took a long time, and it has eventually happened in the twentieth anniversary of the um, ideology of religious studies. Well, it's definitely a seminal book in RS and arguably the foundational text of the critical study of religion. Although there are certainly other important ones, and Russell McCutcheon's Critics and Caretakers would be a, another example. Or um, what was the other one? Is it Manufacturing? Is that what it's called? Yeah, Manufacturing Religion, yeah. Um, you know, a bunch of other uh, David Chidester's books. And anyway, Atomical Massasab would, would be another uh, classic. However, mm-hmm. so it was, for me, it was a real. It was a real privilege, actually, to be able to bring him onto the RSP for a long conversation because he's not been um, communicating much with with uh, academia for quite a while now after the um, unfortunate situation at at the university where he worked for a few years. So it was great to be able to bring him on and give him the time and the space to do. Eventually, we we ended up doing two episodes, this one covering his work up to and including the ideology of religious studies. And then uh, the next one, which we'll publish in a couple of weeks on the work he's done since then, which is less well known, but just as important and um, arguably even more innovative. And I think that in years to come, the rest of the discipline will gradually begin to catch up with um, with him. But um, that's me jumping the gun a little. Very exciting stuff, though. And it's one of the great benefits of the Religious Studies Project that we have this additional platform where we can give people that space to really discuss in depth these topics. And particularly if they haven't felt like they've had the, the comfortable space to be able to do that. So it's a real benefit of the project. But um, what do we have coming up next week, Tim? Oh, Dave, Dave, this, this is one of your ones, isn't it? I did it. It's me. Yeah. I did it. Tell did us. Thing. Tell us about it. <laughs> you know, uh, I went to the AAR, and one of the, the, the opportunities that I had at the AAR was to talk with the brand new editors, Sarah Imhoff and M. Cooper Harris, who started a brand new journal out of the Indiana University Press called American Religion. It's going to be semi-annual publication, and the first issue came out right around the time of the AAR last fall. 
and they shared with me some of their thoughts on what it's like to start a new journal. And I'm excited to bring that to you because that's something we don't often get to hear and think about as frequently as we'd like. So many of the things that we receive our wisdom from have been established decades ago. And to to see a new one and get to, to talk to them about how they made the editorial decisions about who's going to be involved and what kind of formats they're going to do. It was very exciting. And I'm really looking forward to everyone having a chance to hear that. Until then, I guess the only thing to say is thanks thanks for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.